Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Severin Borenstein, professor at the University of California at Berkeley's Haas School of Business, faculty director of the Energy Institute at Haas, and member of the Board of Governors of the California Independent System Operator. As the state of Texas struggles to keep the lights on due to extreme cold, I'll ask Severin about lessons learned from California's blackouts during the summer of 2020. We'll talk about the cause of the outages, the role of renewables, and market reforms that could help reduce the risk of blackouts in the future. We'll also focus on how California's experience can help Texas and other regional electricity networks plan for a future with more renewable power. Stay with us. Okay, Severin Bornstein from the University of California at Berkeley. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thanks for having me on. So Severin, we're going to talk today about electricity, which is very much in the news uh, as everyone is thinking about what's been happening in Texas over the last week or so. But before we dive into um, electricity, and we're going to be focusing on California, (laughs) the West Coast of the country, um, can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in working on energy and environmental issues? Yeah, my history is sort of long and winding. When I was an undergraduate, I got very interested in economics and ended up writing my senior thesis on airline deregulation and then working on airline deregulation in Washington, D.C. in 1978 in the midst of it, which was very exciting. I, from that, started working on price discrimination, something airlines are good at. Mm -hmm. And one day was at a gas station and noticed, this was in the 80s, that they were selling leaded and unleaded gasoline for the same price. So I went and talked to the owner about why and started studying gasoline markets. And from there, I started studying oil markets. And then in the mid-1990s, I was made director of the UC Energy Institute based on my oil and gasoline work. And that happened to be the year that California began its deregulation of electricity. Uh, So within six months, I had to go up to the state legislature and testify about electricity restructuring. Uh, That, of course, led into work on market power and electricity markets and uh, the California electricity crisis in 2000-2001. And then from there, actually, uh, the markets got very quiet in the mid-2000s, just as California launched a very serious program to address climate change, which you've talked about on the podcast, I know. And... Uh, So I started working on cap and trade markets and environmental issues around energy. And that's where I am these days. Yeah, fantastic. And your expertise spans so many different areas that it's uh, it's really great to have you on the show. I'm frankly surprised that we haven't had you on before. Um, But uh, as I said in the introduction, we're going to be talking about electricity and power outages today. It's at the top of everyone's mind. Uh, We're recording this on February 17th, as millions of people in Texas and elsewhere have been without power for quite some time. So to get us started, um, can you help us understand um, the basics of what types of power outages can occur and what the drivers of those power outages are? Yeah, so for most power outages that we experience as residential and small commercial consumers, 
are distribution line failures. Uh, the two most common reasons are a tree actually falling on or touching a distribution line or a transformer on a distribution line blowing. And those are those cylindrical devices that are up on the power poles. And when they get overloaded, they blow and knock out power. Um, so that's what we mostly uh, experience. Here in California, we've experienced a different variety of that over the last few years, where they've actually been intentionally shutting off power to uh, distribution and even some transmission lines where they were worried that those uh, lines could start fires. So we've right. had what are called public safety power shutoffs. Uh, the kind that we experienced in California in August and has been going on in Texas is extremely rare. These are system shortages or sometimes shortages in local power areas where there just isn't enough electricity available. This isn't a, a problem with transmitting the power. There's just too much demand, and not enough supply. Those occur extremely rarely, typically in a system less than once a decade. Uh, but when they do, they get a lot of attention. Uh, one of the things that is happening, and we've seen this both in California, where we had unprecedented heat wave, and in Texas, where we're seeing an extreme cold, uh, is more extreme weather, which is creating larger uh, problems on the system in supplying the electricity. And as we've seen both in California and Texas, not just on the demand side, but also on the supply side. Uh, and so in both cases, it's created this imbalance. Uh, and as a result, uh, what are called controlled rolling outages. Uh, those are done to avoid uh, the more extreme outcome, which we saw in 2003 in the Northeast and at times before, where they don't get a handle on it. They don't cut demand fast enough and the whole system overloads. And when that happens, all the generators start shutting off in order to protect themselves from the frequency uh, variation on the system. And then you get what's called a cascading outage, where you can get whole states or larger having their entire power grid shut down. So to avoid that, grid operators start requiring uh, shutdowns in smaller areas in order to keep control of the system. Great. That's super helpful. And we're going to focus today, uh, as you said, on what happened in California in mid-August of 2020, when there were widespread rotating outages over a few days. Um, the sequence of events that caused those delays, I I've come to understand, is extremely complicated. Uh, and we're not going to try to get into every detail, but can you give us a basic overview of what happened? Yeah, and first I have to note that, that these really were not widespread rotating outages. It's interesting that these get so much attention, even though they uh, actually affected a relatively small number of people relative to the whole system. The first day of the two outages uh, reduced the total demand by about 2% on the system, and the second day on reduced it by about 1%. Hmm. But that's still a lot of people losing right. their power. Um, for purposes of comparison, typically a California household loses power a little over once a year due to distribution line failures. And these outages would raise that typical outage rate from around 1 to around 1.05 for an average household. So this was not an enormous electricity event, nothing, by the way, like the public safety power shutoffs we've had where the 
power companies have been intentionally shutting off power lines in order to reduce fire risk, which have affected far more people. But nonetheless, they are a real indicator of some of the problems that we're seeing around the country and around the world. Um, in California, fundamentally, there was a record hot weather and high demand. Um, and uh, we saw the highest usage probably California has ever seen. I say probably because we don't exactly know because there's so much behind the meter solar now that we have to sort of guess at how much in total customers were using. But based on how much behind the meter solar there is and what it was probably producing, these were probably the highest consumption uh, uh, days that we have ever seen in California. Uh, so demand was very high. Uh, we were keeping up with it as a system, uh, though it was getting very tight, and even day ahead it looked like it would be very tight. Uh, and then uh, the sun started to set. And unfortunately, we were uh, very dependent on solar at that point. And when the sun sets, uh, not just the grid solar starts to shut down, but the demand from customers starts to go up because that behind the meter solar, which was showing up as less demand from customers, also started to disappear. Now, we were still set and looked like uh, the system would make it through. But in one case, uh, on the first of these two outage days, uh, we suddenly lost a power plant, uh, a gas fire generator, and uh, that forced us further down into reserves. And I should note, it's not that the system runs out of power because you don't want to get to that point. It's when you start to get close, the system operator has to say, well, we don't have enough contingency coverage in case we lost another power plant or a transmission line. So we need to institute rolling blackouts right now. So we dipped below those required operating reserves. And when we did, the system uh, had to call for rotating outages. Now, people have talked about the role of gas-fired power plants, and we did lose a couple, although not more than you would typically expect in extreme heat, and of renewables. And on the second day of these outages, we did have a somewhat unusual wind event where wind power picked up a lot in the hour before the rotating outages occurred and then it dropped very suddenly and that was part of what pushed it over the edge but when i heard people talk about well it was the failure of wind power that's sort of like talking about the last batter in the bottom of the ninth striking out and saying well he lost the game <laughs> uh you know there we you had gotten to that point and we were needing every resource and so when the wind dropped in that case uh, we had a problem the last point is that uh, usually California, when these sorts of extreme heat events occurs, can bring in a lot of power from the rest of the West, and we do. And California imports power all the time uh, and is very dependent on trading power with the rest of the West and on net importing. Uh, unfortunately, this was a unprecedented West-wide heat wave. And so California was trying to get power from the rest of the Western US, but uh, there was less available than usual. So the actual outages uh, did not occur at the time of peak demand. 
uh, and this is going to be important in thinking about planning in the future, they actually occurred uh, at the time of what's called the net peak. When you net out the renewables, particularly the solar, um, that you have what's left over. And the problem occurred not at the very highest demand of the day, but a little while later when demand had gone down a little, but solar power had dropped a lot as the sun was setting. And that's when the system really started dropping too low into its reserves to maintain operation. That's great. So you touched on this uh, already, at least a little bit, but uh, I'm sure our audience is uh, aware that California gets a large and increasing share of its electricity from wind and solar. About 28% of the power produced within the state was from wind and solar in 2019. And wind and solar are intermittent. Um, so to what extent did the intermittency uh, contribute to this problem? Well, we have to make a distinction between intermittency, that is unpredictable ups and downs in renewables, and timing, which is mm -hmm. we know when the sun's going to set. Um, both of these played some role. Uh, that we did, as I mentioned, have that wind event where wind power ramped up and then rapidly ramped down. Uh, and of course, we ran into the problem after the sunset. Uh, which is a completely predictable event. Uh, neither of those are problems that can't be managed, uh, but I think in both cases, and particularly in the case of uh, the sun setting, uh, the way the state has been managing it has not been precise enough uh, about managing the, the timing of the sunset and resources we'll need. And that is something that showed up. So this in no way suggests you can't run a system with a large share of renewables, but it does suggest that you have to plan for it in a very granular way. Great, and I, and I know we're gonna come back to that in, in just a moment, but before we uh, uh, speak to that planning issue, um, there's one question that I wanted to ask, which is in informal conversations with fellow energy nerd friends, um, I've heard some of them speculate that certain generators in California switched off or ramped down their power production uh, with the intent of increasing prices, sort of driving a price spike that would enable them to gain higher profits, even though their production would be a little bit lower because those prices would really spike. Do you know if there's any merit to those claims? Yeah, that's something one worries about. In fact, Jim Bushnell, my longtime co-author, and I have wor been working on market power in electricity markets since the mid-90s. And we wrote a paper before the California electricity crisis warning of this problem and then during it, pointing it out. So I'm not shy about pointing out market power issues, um, but the best evidence is that's not what was going on here. And in fact, the independent department of market monitoring which is technically part of kaiso but operates completely independently has done their own study and they found that prices were no higher than they would have been under a scenario with no exercise of market power so essentially uh, there is no evidence that the prices were higher than they would have been the very high prices we saw were a result of true scarcity and that's how market should work when a uh, a commodity gets scarce, the price should go up. We do need to worry about whether that's due to somebody reducing supply, but in this case, there's no evidence that that was the cause. Great. And Severin, you just used an acronym that we haven't defined yet, and I realize now it would be useful for our audience to tell them what does CAISO stand for and what does CAISO do? 
Kaiso is the California Independent System Operator. I'm on the Board of Governors of it, and I should say that nothing I'm saying represents their views. Uh, but uh, this is the grid operator, and there's one in Texas. The listeners have probably been hearing about ERCOT, the Electricity Reliability Commission of Texas or something of that sort. I want to say it's a council, but council maybe, of yeah. Texas. That's yeah. probably right. Um, uh, these are the operators who are actually making sure in real time there is enough power flowing into the system to exactly match the amount of power being demanded on the system. So in California, that's called CAISO, the California Independent System Operator. Uh, they don't actually operate generation, but they are the traffic cop that makes sure everything stays in balance. And they also run the markets where the power is traded day ahead and in real time. And now, a word from our sponsor. Hi, it's me, Daniel Ramey again. That's right, Resources Radio doesn't have any sponsors. We depend on listeners like you to make our show possible. If you're enjoying today's episode, please consider making a donation to RFF. Visit rff.org slash support to donate online and find out other ways to contribute. Thanks. The next couple questions I want to ask you are sort of turning from what caused the problem, uh, which is what we've been talking about, to this question of how do we address uh, this problem going forward. One of the important uh, terms that I've learned uh, from reading your work and, and watching uh, presentations you've made is um, this issue of resource adequacy requirements. So can you tell us how California's resource adequacy requirements work, how they might contribute to the problem, and then how they might be amended to, um, to address this problem in the future? Yeah, and this is a big area of difference across the country and across the world of if you you can you need a traffic cop making sure power flows in to match power flow being taken out but do you do planning in advance that uh makes sure that there is enough capacity on the system so that during those peak times you can uh, have enough power and california does it does a resource adequacy planning process texas by the way doesn't texas basically leaves it to all the producers to make sure they have enough generation to meet their demand, all of the load serving entities, that is. Um, what we do in California is we go to all the entities that serve customers, what are called load serving entities, and say, if you have so much demand to serve, then you have to make sure that you've contracted with enough supply to meet that. And we're going to count different sorts of suppliers in different ways. A natural gas-fired power plant we think will be available 90x percent of the time, and so we're going to count it that much. Uh, nuclear plants and so forth. Uh, a solar plant, well, we know that that only works when the sun shines, so you only get this amount of credit. Uh, and uh, in demand response also counts as resource adequacy. If you have a certain amount of demand reduction that you can count on, then we're going to count that too. And so every entity 
And we're not just talking about the huge investor-owned utilities, but also some smaller providers, such as what we call community choice aggregators. These are the cities and towns that have become their own retail providers in California. Each of them has a resource adequacy requirement, and they add up what they've contracted for in order to meet the, those requirements. There are a couple problems with what California has done. The most important one is that we have been using sort of rule of thumb approaches to what is actually going to be needed in ways that don't really match what you have to have hour by hour and minute by minute. And the most important one probably is the way we credit solar. And solar is a great resource and we can do a lot with it. But when the sun's not shining, if you don't have storage as well, you're not producing. And what we've been doing is crediting solar for its average production over a four or five hour window. Mm. And it meets that requirement. And right. the load serving entities count it and say, see, we're, we've contracted for it. But of course, it's producing huge amounts in the first couple hours of that window at the end of the day, and then nothing at the end of that window. And so, yes, on average, it's producing the right amount, but average isn't what counts when you're balancing the system. So the first thing we need to do is we need to have a much more granular minute-by-minute -minute approach to resource adequacy. And I want to be clear, I am not blaming these load-serving entities who have contracted for the solar. They have read the rules and followed the rules. They, they are not the ones who make the whole system balance. They are told you got to do the following things. And they've met those requirements by and large. There's obviously sometimes people don't exactly do it. But um, the problem is the way we've drawn the requirements don't actually match the realities of production. Uh, we have similar problems with demand response that uh, demand response is credited in ways that uh, when push comes to shove, we're not actually getting what the credit counts for. Now, the demand response providers will say, well, we're producing what we said we would. Uh, and that is true in some sense, but the credits that are being uh, gotten for demand response don't actually match the value it's bringing to balance the system. So, and, and then we just have the general problem with generators uh, generally showing up. They get paid for providing resource adequacy which means they have to bid into the market, but in some cases they don't, and in some cases they they are bidding in, and but they don't actually have the power to provide. Mm -hmm. So we need to have a more pay for performance system so that when you actually show up in those critical moments, you, you get rewarded, but if you don't show up, you get penalized. Uh, and I think we're gonna move towards that. Uh, there's certainly, after what happened in California last summer, and I suspect they will also be reevaluating in Texas, a move to say, okay, we need to have an idea of exactly what's going to show up and how it's going to show up uh, minute by minute. Great. And to, to do those uh, types of reforms, I, I imagine there would be kind of new modeling that would be required. So some additional research as a kind of first step to making those changes? Well, actually, the irony is we do this modeling. Uh, hmm. The California Independent System Operator does it. The California Energy Commission does it. So the, the standards that have been set and the crediting for resource adequacy is not 
sort of the best the, reflecting the best modeling the modeling is much more refined and granular uh, it's just using a rule of thumb approach to that modeling which you know back when we ran the system entirely with thermal and nuclear it pretty much worked because most of those differences were random outages you know we we had uh fuel running into the generators and sometimes the generator would switch off but it wasn't happening in a correlated way that's clearly not true now with uh, wind and solar um, and in texas we've seen it's not true with natural gas and even coal fire power plants where extreme cold can cause a disproportionate share of the generators to shut down and then suddenly you've got just not enough uh, power coming into the system yeah so interesting so you've already you know given us some lessons and you know recommendations to think about going forward but are there other key lessons that you would draw from the california experience um and you know, maybe what the connections, similarities, or differences might be from the Texas experience, particularly with regard to this issue of um, incorporating more renewables into the system. Yeah, um, I have to first say, as we did have this small outage, what I would say is a relatively small outage in California, I think there is certainly a chance it could have been a lot worse. Um, there was a pandemic going on, and we don't know how high demand would have been if there weren't a pandemic on those days, but we wouldn't have had any more resources. Uh, and likewise in Texas, uh, it's unclear how the pandemics affected it. So we do need to jump on this. Um, we have to recognize that although no generation is perfectly reliable, each generation type is unreliable in a different way. Uh, so we need to recognize that the sort of outages that occur at gas plants are not the sort of outages or performance failures that occur in solar or in wind uh, or in hydro in as we saw in brazil a few years ago where they had a drought uh, and each of those has to be modeled differently and accounted for differently and that means a much more granular approach to that uh, i think we've also learned that we need to take a new approach to demand response where we're really asking what was the counterfactual demand that they would have required so that we're not crediting demand response with reductions that would have occurred anyway. Uh, and that's generally the problem when you start paying a customer to use less of something. Uh, it's always a question of less from what baseline and do you have a difference between uh, the true counterfactual usage and uh, their actual usage? And this is really also changing as markets uh, we have more small participants. Um, you know, back when we had big utilities, they sort of took care of these issues themselves. Uh, but now when you have many load serving entities, uh, you're, you, each of them, is abiding by the rules they face, but those rules really need to be precisely right. You can't count on the judgment of each market participant to say, yeah, I need to do something a little different from the rules because the system needs it. When each market participant is just a tiny piece of the system, they are gonna follow the rules. So we gotta make sure we get those rules right. That's so interesting. And, you know, of course, all of this is going to become 
more complex, at least in some ways, um, for the reasons that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, which is more extreme weather events largely associated with climate change. Yeah, both more extreme weather events and I hope greater reliance on non-fossil generation, uh, which has a different set of reliability issues than fossil generation does. And so we need to make sure that we design a system that is resilient to that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Severin, this has been such a fascinating conversation. And uh, I should tell our audience, we didn't plan on having a power outage podcast uh, the week of the great power outages in Texas. So this is a little bit of um, unfortunate serendipity, I would say. Um, but let's close it out now with a uh, question that we ask all of our guests, uh, which is what is on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack? So something that you've read or watched or heard related to the environment uh, or energy even if tangentially, that you'd recommend to folks. And I'll start with a book that is on its way to me currently. I haven't picked it up yet, but it is Elizabeth Colbert's uh, new book called Under the White Sky. I listened to a podcast interview she did recently with Ezra Klein mm -hmm. in which they talked about the book. And it, it, you know, it's just all about the ways that humans are intervening in natural systems in new ways. Uh, including, you know, gene editing technologies, solar geoengineering, and, and all sorts of other, you know, very interesting and very fraught uh, applications of technologies, in many cases, trying to solve environmental problems that we've created in the past with new technologies. So uh, it seems like a fascinating book, and she's an amazing writer. So uh, I'm really looking forward to, to picking that up. But how about you, Severin? What's on the top of your stack? Well, there are a couple things I've read recently. One I've reread recently. Um, one is uh, called The Box by Mark Levinson, which it sounds like an incredibly boring topic. It's about <laughs> containerized cargo. Uh, but wow, when you read it, you realized how the uh, innovation of containerized shipping completely changed trade in the world and completely changed the world economy. And I, I was just blown away by uh, the depth of the importance of this one innovation and not a great technological innovation, um, certainly nothing like uh, getting a vaccine in 10 months, but uh, a pretty basic uh, idea that completely changed the world economy. Uh, so I, I recommend that. Um, the other is more directly environmental and it's a book called The Bet by Paul Sabin, uh, and it is about, sort of about a famous bet between Paul Ehrlich and Julian Simon that many of your listeners have heard about, about the price of a set of commodities 10 years in the future. Um, but what the book's really about is the whole resource catastrophe movement that grew up in the late 70s that said, we are going to run out of resources by the 90s that predicted just essentially extrapolating um, the current uh, usage and availability that we were run out of all sorts of commodities uh, and there would be starvation and food shortages and so forth. Um, that obviously didn't happen. Um, it's sort of uh, an important uh, lesson, I think, in the environmental movement. And when I when I read it, I re it it certainly didn't give me sympathy for climate change deniers, but it did sort of bring home the idea that simply being experts is not enough. We need to actually communicate the risk in a way that is 
really salient to the to the population as a whole, uh, because otherwise there really is a suspicion of experts who, and it's not even political motivation. They just get an idea and run with it, and that's what happened um, in, with the resource catastrophe movement, and it's something that. Uh, changed my understanding of how we need to communicate uh, the climate crisis and my, as an economist, uh, appreciation for people who are very focused on just the communication part uh, for, you know, setting aside the science, setting aside the markets and the economics, just communicating is so critical to getting people to understand what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. And um well, I, I really appreciate both of those recommendations. They both sound fantastic, and I now really want to get both of those books too. So The Bet and The Box, uh, very nice, concise titles. We'll have links to them in our show notes. So once again, Severin Bornstein from UC Berkeley, thank you so much for coming on the show today and teaching us all about power outages. Well, thanks a lot for having me on. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.